Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is his introduction of greater detail to Abram. Now in the previous chapter, we know that his father was Terah and that he had been in the region of Haran before he came to Canaan, the land of promise. As it says here in the very first verse, the Lord had said to Abram, which is past tense. And so coming from Ur the Chaldeans, which is modern Iraq, he ended up in southwest Turkey in Haran for a good period of time. His father died in Haran, and then he and his household and all the people and possessions he had, they came into the land of Canaan, modern Israel, which would become for him the land of promise. This is a man who, from other parts of scripture, we're told, grew up in a household in a community of great idolatry. Ur was a large metropolitan area at that time, and this is a couple hundred years maybe after the Tower of Babel, and the nations were scattered, the different people groups were scattered, the different ethnicities that defined the planet began to unfold in the various places where people migrated to and the things that happened there. And he ended up in this region, and it was a modern city in that sense. They had sewer systems that were functional and proper. Remember, I mean, man's been smart for a long time. And he came from a society, though, that was very idolatrous. In fact, we're told in the book of Joshua that his dad worshipped idols. So in his family line, he's not connected to the faith of Noah. Like Noah had faith in the Lord. We understand that. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But between Noah and how the genealogy got to him, which we saw in the previous chapter, his forefathers removed themselves from a faith in the living God to faith in false gods and idols. It's important to understand. So God's got a call in his life. And how God spoke to him, we don't know exactly. Like, was it out loud? How did this happen? Did he speak to his heart in the stillness of the morning or something? We don't know. But God clearly and definitively spoke to Abram and said, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So let's look at this part of the calling at first. That's his identity. Your, your country is your identity. And of course, in those cultures, and even in many cultures today, not as much in America, by the way. It's not as much of an American culture as it is in the Latin culture and Asian cultures and some other cultures of the world. But the um, filial concept where a younger generation takes care of the older generation, where you have multiple generations living in the same house and under the same roof, that is very common in a lot of societies. It's not as common in the history and the culture of America. That's, that's worth noting. And so in these Middle Eastern cultures particularly, it would have been very difficult to just break off from the responsibilities to your parents and what is, you know, filial, to do the right thing in honoring your father and your mother. It's just a reality to it that you say, like, oh, you disgrace your family or you disgrace the heritage of your family. In a lot of Eastern religions, they worship the ancestors. The link is to the ancestors. And so the whole idea of your family. So when the Lord speaks to Abram, get out of your country, that's all you knew. And, you know, that's your tribe. That's your identity. 
That's your ethnicity. That's everything. And God says, leave everything you know. Get out of your country, out of your household, and, you know, from your family, your immediate family. So that would be like your parents, maybe your siblings, your adult siblings. And from your father's house, which is a broader scope. You know, when I pray for my family, and maybe you're like this, I pray for my immediate family, of course, my wife, my adult children, their spouses, the grandchildren, and the various needs they might have. That's how I pray. That's my, it always starts with my walk, and then my marriage, the covenant with my wife, and then the stewardship of my children. Once I move past that, I pray for the extended family. I pray for my father and my mother. There used to be so many layers to your extended family. And we choose friends, but we do not choose family. And family has a profound influence on us. Families pull on us. Families push buttons. Families can bring up things that you want them bringing up around people, other people. They have all the dirty laundry. That's what family has. It's all there. And you might love your family. You might feel like it's an okay family. I was reading today a, a a testimony from a kid from Camp Allendale and the foster care system and what a horrible family he had. It was just absolutely horrible. It was an unbelievable story. So his whole idea of parents is horrible and just death and heartache and tragedies throughout his entire life in the foster care system. But John Corson loved his family and John Corson talks fondly, Pastor John from Applegate, about his dad and his family and he's had heartache losing his first wife to an automobile accident, then his oldest daughter to an automobile accident, and now recently Peter John passed away from cancer. Like, we, we share this journey with family, and family's powerful. So when you come home and tell family that you're giving your life to Christ, in some cases they're very excited, like Hudson Taylor's mom, the great missionary, because dad was a pastor and they all served the Lord. But sometimes when you come home and tell your family you're saved, they think you're nuts. And then you're on display and you interact with your family and they might say, no, you need to go to college, not Bible college, and definitely not YWAM, okay? And, and family has all these different concepts. And more often than not, the previous generation wants to run the next generation, and they know how to manipulate them pretty well. I think we can all relate to this stuff. So now when we think of Abram, and he's got a life, He's got an immediate family, an extended family, and a city that he lives in. And God says, leave it all. And this is, this is when cultures were so set and very tribal. You know, if you're an Inca and this is your village, you don't go to the other Inca village or an Aztec. You, you follow me? Like, things were tight. The family is the tribe. So the, the call of God here takes supremacy over where you live, your identity, your citizenship, and your immediate family and your extended family. That's what we learn here. And Jesus Christ affirms this when he walks up to Peter and Andrew who are cleaning their fishing nets, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets immediately. And then he came on to John and James' brothers who were with their father, Zebedee, and he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their fishing nets and their father. It was their whole identity. It was their entire livelihood. They had a fishing business. Dad built a business. They were part of the business. They had a livelihood, and they walked away from it in one moment that day because Jesus Christ walked by them and said, 
follow me. And so it's important to be reminded what was true for Abram, Abraham is true for every disciple of Jesus Christ on this planet. When Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit come to a person's life and they commit their life to the Lord, whether they hear the voice of the Lord in Mandarin or English or Spanish or French or any dialect imaginable in Russian, any dialect imaginable in the world, they're a person and they have a life. And the Holy Spirit calls them upward, forward, well, forward, onward, and upward. And sometimes it goes well with family. Sometimes it does not go well with family. And sometimes family negotiates how far you can go with the Lord. For we see Abram was told to leave his father, but he started the journey with his father. And they got halfway on the road trip before they, did, they settled in on Haran in southwest Turkey, modern Turkey, and they were there for quite some time. There's different things that you can Google that will explain it could be this, it could be that. There's some semantics to it. But it's safe to say that they stopped there for a while and the call of Abram's life was put on hold for at least a season until his father passed away. That's what's implied in the text. You do not want to miss what Jesus Christ has for your life and the call on your life for anything. And it was just as hard for John and James to look at their dad and walk away from the fishing business as it was for Abram to walk away from his family and I can't imagine what he thought when he buried his dad in Haran, but it was different. You think of all those incredible men and women who've given so much for the body of Christ, particularly in the last couple hundred years in the modern missionary movement. When you study the lives of these incredible men and women, so many we know by name, but so many we don't. They're just heroes of the faith that just obeyed and you don't even know who they are. But leaving family, not having the social media, not having the internet, not having the capacity to communicate and do all these things that people do now. The faith, the fiber. Again, I just go back to people like Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and these type of people and what, what they did and the kind of faith and backbone their faith had. It's inspiring to us. And the call of God on our lives in 2019 is no different in expectation that for us than it is for any previous generation of the body of Christ. Jesus is Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And we understand that. Remember when the person came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And he says, really? Well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the other man, Jesus said, you follow me. And he goes, oh, first let me bury my father. He goes, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Many are called, but few are chosen. And as I said not so long ago, there is no moral majority. There's a narrow gate that leads to life. And Jesus says there's few who enter thereby. 30 years ago, close to 30 years ago, when I was pastoring in Virginia Beach, 30 years old, my first senior pastor, Calvary Chapel, Hampton Roads, and really sitting in the philosophy of the ministry, like who we were, what we're about, our core values, when people didn't even say those terms at that time, but sort of defining our culture and our core values, the Lord brought me to a key juncture as we went through some intense local church drama. Do you want a building full of churchgoers or do you want to make disciples? And 
I just remember being settled on the fact that the Great Commission is to go make disciples, not churchgoers. And if every person that goes to church in America was a disciple, we'd have a very different America. But they're not. Discipleship is to be disciplined under the lordship of Jesus Christ, where he's Lord of all. I watched a Chinese series recently, back in the day, kind of like, you know, one of those dynasties back in the day. You know, they, they would do this thing where re recognizing superiority, and, you know, they go like this. Like that, it's always acknowledging of respect and authority over them. And I thought, you know, that's how I need to be with Jesus when I wake up every morning. Yes, Master. Because a servant's not greater than his master. If we ever needed people obeying the call of God and being true disciples of Jesus Christ, it is certainly most appropriate in this generation. For our land is filled with churchgoers, but we need our land to be filled with disciples and true followers of Jesus Christ. Many are called, but few are chosen. And God called Abram, and he did respond. Now, in that calling, he said in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Now, it's funny because I think deep within us all, we want our name to be great. At least I do. I did. I do. I did. I do. I don't know. Maybe it's like, I don't know if it's past tense or present tense. Depends what kind of week I'm having, you know. Um, but it's not about us. It never is about us. It's about the Lord being lifted up. And the less of us in the flesh, the better off the planet is. And the more of us filled with the Holy Spirit, the better off the planet is. Because then we're truly who we're meant to be, almost like a pre-fall world. And we're being transformed from glory to glory. How often does God say, I'll make your name great? That's not something he does for too many people. Not very many people can handle having a great name. You know, most famous people go nuts. You look at all those famous uh, actors and mu musicians from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, almost all of them killed themselves or OD. They go nuts. Or if they don't kill themselves, they just go nuts and you have to watch it. There's something about unrestrained fame that deceives people like Nebuchadnezzar. Look what I did. And God might love you enough to let you mow the lawn with your teeth for a while and go crazy and then restore your sanity to you, but he might not. Abram could be trusted with fame. God said, I will make your name great. It makes you appreciate someone like Greg Laurie, right? Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Pastor Chuck. So many people, even in the name of Jesus, when they get fame, they just unravel. They just... There's something intoxicating about the fame and the power and the glory. And Nadab and Abihu learned that God will not share his glory with someone else. He'll consume them. But he'll let them go for a while. God said, I'll make you, I'll bless you. Your name will be great and you shall be a blessing. Now, Jesus, when he called Peter and Andrew, John and James, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But he said, follow me, supremacy of Christ. 
I will make you. That's the beauty of God's call, Old Testament, New Testament. It's not our ability, but our availability. I will make you. You get out of your family, get out of your country, and I will make you. I will make you a great name. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. What? We've only got one life, right? I seem to remind us that every study. Every time I listen to study, why do I say every study? You only got like one life. You better Because I need to be reminded. I think I'm reminding me. I'm reminding you, but I'm reminding me. We get one chance at this journey called life. And the legacy of our life. We got one chance to make life about Jesus and others and being a blessing for others. To be givers and not takers. You shall be a blessing. So before we move on from this thought, let me just say, what could be better than the call of God, which is universal when you come to Christ? He wants you and I to be a blessing to others. He wants the legacy of our life, few years or many years, to be a blessing to humanity. So if he sends you to China, be a blessing to China. If he sends you to Vietnam, be a blessing to Vietnam. If he sends you to work in corporate Irvine, be a blessing in corporate Irvine. Wherever he sends you to work, wherever he sends you, to be a blessing. And we've had this saying from the onset of having children in our marriage that we want to leave things better than we found them. And it's not hard to find ways to bless people. We speak words that are positive and edifying as opposed to divisive, catty, and quenching and grieving. We proactively do things without being told to do them because we see there's a need there. It's not hard to find your ministry. Look around and you can see where there's a need and you just begin to fulfill it. We think of others. We become other-centered. But as long as we're self-centered, it's very limited to what kind of a blessing we could ever be. Just want our lives to be a blessing. Yeah, the human experience gets difficult. It gets choppy. It has conflict. Sometimes it has very intense conflict. But in the end, we want the legacy of our life to be a blessing. Abraham, the father of faith, God says you will be a blessing. So if you're a daughter of faith in Jesus Christ, a son of faith in Jesus Christ, we want the end of our journey, a reasonable expectation, if we're saying we're living a life of faith, or we're saved by faith, we walk by faith, that the legacy should be our life was a blessing. If we say we're living by faith in Jesus Christ, then our life should be a blessing to those closest to us and those on the outer fringes wherever we go. We care. And the world is filled with so much sorrow and heartache and hatred and malice. And loving others, loving our enemies, serving others, turning the other cheek, blessing those who curse us. We want our lives to be a blessing. And if it's appreciated, great. If not, doesn't matter. We want our life said and done to have been a legacy of a blessing whatever we leave it should look better than how we found it that's the life of faith and God promised that through Abram and then he said I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed he's got our back now Abram, of course, is the father of the nation of Israel. And thus, this is the passage that people refer to, why don't mess with Israel. Bless Israel, get blessings. Curse Israel, get cursed. And I think that's very much in play and very valid. But he says, 
basically what he's saying to Abram is, I got your back. And as we look at the life of Abram, we'll see God had his back. God had his back. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. What happens when he goes to Abimelech? Abimelech, he curses Abimelech's household. He curses Pharaoh's household. Even though Abram was in mistaken fault, God had his back. He doesn't have your back because you always make the right decisions. He has your back because you're his child. And you have your kids back when they make good decisions and bad decisions. You don't stop praying because they make bad decisions. You pray even more. Don't forget one of the unique things that God says about Abram in one of the prophetic books is, Abraham is my friend. And he's the friend, God calls him friend because he didn't withhold Isaac by faith. He offered up Isaac. He said, Abraham is my friend. Now we see God loves everybody. God loves all the children of the world. But in his living word, preserved by the Holy Spirit, that he says of this man, hundreds of years later, he's my friend. God could count on Abraham. Abraham understood the vision, the purposes of God. And when God said that I'm going to bless the entire world through your son of promise, but I want you to offer him up on the altar, he knew that God's faithfulness of his promise would come through no matter what happened with Isaac on the altar. And that's how we're told that when he went to Mount Moriah and offered up Isaac, and we'll get this in chapter 22, that he said, the boy and I will go yonder and we shall return. And he knew whatever happened on Mount Moriah, he was coming down that mountain with his son. And he did not withhold his only son. And because of that act of faith, recorded for us in the book of James, Hebrews, and Genesis 22, God says in another prophetic book, He's my friend. And that's pretty cool. But God would say he's his friend. God had his back. God has your back. He has our back. We don't need to vindicate ourselves. He's got our back. And then he said, in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. This, of course, is the promise pertaining to Jesus Christ. Now, modern Israel and the Jewish people historically in the Old Testament saw that they were the blessing. So the whole planet's blessed because they're the descendants of Abraham through the son of promise, Isaac, which in a way is certainly true. They were the stewards of God's word in the Old Testament. They were the keepers of the promises. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, came through them ethnically and to them as promised through the virgin birth. But we're told very clearly and definitively in the New Testament that the seed or the offspring of Abraham that's a blessing to all nations is not the nation of Israel, but the son of, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who came as the king of the Jews through the nation of Israel. So here is a messianic promise in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because we do see in Revelation, every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ. Every nation, every ethnicity is blessed and represented in eternity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was the Great Commission, but he said all nations. So the Gentiles, all people other than the Jews, there's a plan for them all along. But for that 2,000-year run from Abraham to the 500 years to get to Moses and Exodus, that's another 1,500 years, so it's 500 plus 15 equals 2,000 years. He had that nation set aside with two covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and then Christ comes, the new and everlasting covenant. So he comes to the Jew, the gospel to the Jew first, descendants of Abraham, 
but to the Gentile as well, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, then the Gentile. And the book of Acts records for us that. These are a couple of really important verses of the Bible because this, these events of Abraham are expounded for us in many different places in the New Testament pointing toward the coming of Christ. Now, we read on. So, we pick it up again here where it says, So, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, that's his nephew, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions, all they had gathered, and the people whom they acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, modern Israel. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he, that is Abram, built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. So here in these verses, through verse 9, we get the background again. So he departed, and he came eventually with his entourage of people coming via Haran, so Ur, through Haran, the death of his father, Terah, and then coming into the promised land, Canaan. A couple things that stand out to me in this passage, of course, he was a wealthy man by the time he got there. It's just the Canaanites were in the land, the Canaanites. We read about the Canaanites back in the Table of Nations back in chapter 10. They're just a people group that settled in the coastal areas of modern Israel, Gaza, all that region, Lebanon, going up towards Syria, modern Syria, and they were there. There's all kinds of archaeological evidence to tell us a lot about the Canaanites. We know that they are ruthless, vicious people. They are a violent, degenerate, beastly people. Incredible lewdness and brutality in the culture. Within five centuries, they are so lewd, so vile, that they find themselves in the same place as Noah's generation where there is no redemptive hope for them. And God issues a decree for total judgment upon the ethnic people group and the subdivisions, the Hittites, etc., Jebusites, upon them all because they're, they're not redeemable in their self-determination. And God in his sovereignty pronounced a judgment upon these people. So when Abram comes into this land, he's hundreds of years in front of it, and this land is promised to him, but there are people occupying that land that are powerful, far greater in number, and they're there. Which brings up a good point to us. Everything that God wants to do in our life, you know, we're pretty much a minority, right? We're, again, we're the narrow gate. And he sends us to workplaces where we're called to serve, to turn the other cheek, to not give sass or bad attitude. And we're surrounded by people who are arrogant, self-centered, thieves, liars, violent conspiracy people, just take your pick. And we're the people that are called to trust God in that situation. Some of you have been let go wrongly by your place of employment because people lied about you or conspired against you. 
That's just going to work with the Canaanites. But God has promised us the land. The earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. And we're told in Revelation, those worshiping the Lord Jesus in chapter 5, they say, you have redeemed us by your blood, and we shall rule and reign with you. I personally believe it's possible that many of the missionaries who have laid down their lives in foreign countries will rule over those parts of the world in the millennial reign of Christ in glorified bodies. It doesn't have to be that way, but I could see it being that way. Jesus gave his life for humanity and redeemed the scroll for the purchase of possession of planet Earth. And he opens that scroll in Revelation 6. He's the only one worthy to open that scroll. He became the servant of all and laid on his life for planet Earth. And he's coming to rule and reign, not as the king of the Jews, but king of kings over planet Earth, by whom and for whom are all things Jesus Christ. And we're told the redeemed in Revelation 5 come and rule and reign with him. There's always Canaanites. Wherever God sends you, there's people that pre-exist there. Wherever you can go, there's people that, years ago in a post world, people went out all over the world. The land bridges and the Ice Age and how they ended up in North America, South America, and all these different people groups on the, on the you know, South Pacific Islands and all these places. They, they got there. We're descendants of Adam, the son of God, is his title. And humanity is everywhere. And when you come into the planet, there's people that have been here, some as many as 100 years, and they're already out there, and they already own houses, and they own possessions, and they have power, and they have position. And we're bo born helpless as newborn babes, and then we come up in the world, and there's it's a preexistence. There's always someone bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, with more power and more money than you. And unlike being in the world and left on your own with your own plans and your own wit and, and abilities, in Jesus Christ, we're fully equipped for everything he's called us to do. And so we show up in the land of promise like Abram, and the Canaanites are everywhere, and they're stronger, more powerful, more forceful, more brutal, and they're your neighbors. And you can't live in fear, but you trust in God. So if he sends you to plant a church in Watts, you plant a church in Watts. If he sends you to the maximum security prison in Manila, like Leo, 2006, you go and you do what he sent you to do. If he sends you to Afghanistan, you go to Afghanistan. You do what he's called you to do. There's always evil, violent people wherever you could end up on this planet. There's nothing new under the sun. And when you start a new job, you might be the lowest person. You might come in above people, but there's people over you. There's a culture already in place. That's life. That's the human experience. Only Adam and Eve know what it's like to start it out and be the boss of nothing that becomes something. Solomon said, if you're waiting for the wind to be the right direction or the weather to be perfect, you'll never sow. He said, cast your bread upon many waters. You don't know when it'll come back to you. He said, don't say the wind is this way and the sky is that way. In other words, wherever we go at, with the promises of faith, Abram, Sarai, daughters of the king, sons of the king, there's Canaanites. So sow bountifully. And whatever wrath he has, whatever vindication he has, Think good thoughts and blessings upon the people around you 
because we're told in the New Testament to bless those who persecute us and love those who hate us and spitefully use us. That's a hard thing to do. And it's not like God told every generation, go wipe out a people group. He told that to Joshua, one generation. And that's between him and humanity that he made. That's between him and the Canaanites. And if he says the Canaanites will destroy that which is godly and pollute them and corrupt them, if you got two dogs and one's got rabies, he's going to, it's hard to put down old Yeller, but you got to put down old Yeller. Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't need to defend God's wrath in the book of Joshua, and nor do you. It's his universe. God's will is perfect, and we can trust him. Ours is to fear the Lord in a good way and obey his commandments, the whole matter of it, Ecclesiastes says. You're going to have Canaanites, your neighbors, everywhere you go. The planet's covered in Canaanites. Just don't be one, don't live like one, and don't act like one. Because the children of promise walk by faith. And we're told in Hebrews 11, 8, that by faith, Abraham and Sarah obeyed God and went to the promised land, not knowing where they're going. So as hard as a journey of faith is, which this was, Hebrews 11, 8 interprets this passage for us. Every step was a step toward the unknown. Many of you have taken journeys like that, new places to live, new careers, new jobs, new relationships, new countries. Like a book with blank pages ready to be written. Well, you go by faith. Their journey was faith. And then you get there and there's Canaanites. You know, when you're going in the mission field, you think you're going to go for it with the Lord. You're so excited. Like, we're going for it. And I always tell people, make sure you know your call because once you get there, you're going to find out if you were. God will never leave you, but you're going to question your calling immediately when you're in a foreign land. And you're like, we're called, we're going to reach everyone in New England. And then you wake up in Burlington, Vermont, and you realize no one in New England wants to hear what you have to say. That'll test your calling right away. It's life. But if you love people where you go, you're good. Those famous words of Dale Irwin to me, Joey, God's will is not where you go, but who you are, where you're at. God's will is you becoming like Jesus. Don't overthink, like, should I go here or go there? Just you living like Jesus is God's will, and that'll work anywhere you go. What did he do in that foreign land surrounded by Canaanites? He built an altar, he pitched his tent, and he built an altar, and he pitched his tent. A worshiper and a pilgrim. This man has promised all of modern Israel. It's the size of Southern California. You know, there's some big ranches in Southern California that people, you know, like the Bixby Ranch, all these different ranches that people used to own back in the day. You know, you go to Cayucas and you're on this beautiful state park. It says who owned it in the 1800s and then who, 1700s and 1800s, and then who bought it in 1905 and then sold it in 1915 as a dairy farm and eventually becomes a state park. Most of Southern California was all these ranches 200 years ago, like Mission Viejo, and all, they're all ranches. But eventually it all gets redistributed. Well, if you can imagine getting to a land and you don't have a house, just a tent and faith, and God says, all of it's yours. Could you imagine looking over Southern California and God says, it's all yours. He never built a house. He always lived out of his tent. He was a pilgrim. 
In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us, they look for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. They were tent dwellers. They were a family of tent dwellers and altar builders. See, if you are passing through as a pilgrim in Jesus' name, you, you know, a dwelling's a dwelling, and contentment in a dwelling is a really good thing. Just tent dweller. Hey, if you get to own a house, good. Just make sure the Lord owns it. That way, if you lose it, he lost it. Blew it. Nothing owns you except the Lord. Pilgrim. Passing through, wherever you go, build an altar. Tent, altar. That's the life of faith. Just passing through. Paul said, I've learned to abandon to a base, and I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you're abounding, great. If you're abased, great. God has a plan in both. But when you're surrounded by Canaanites in a brave new world, I just love the fact, build altars, worship the Lord, and pitch your tent. Even when God promises all of it to you, you say, you know what, that's cool, but we're looking for a city which had a foundation whose builder and maker is God. We read on now in verse 10. And now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house and he treated Abram well for her sake and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with the great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. A couple of interesting facts. Abram was a prophet. He, he saw where it was going. He did call it. He, he, he saw where it was going. I mean, he called this one correctly. She was his half-sister. But his wife was beautiful. In fact, the Holy Spirit tells us, very beautiful. His wife was very beautiful. He's a blessed man. And she's in the Hebrews Hall of Fame for her faith. So she, not only was she attractive, she was spirit-filled. Now, she had her failures, even as Abram did, but they don't take away from the bigger picture. No one's perfect, and we all make mistakes. And there's two things we close with tonight, looking at this chapter, this passage of Scripture in this part of the chapter. Famine and failure. Abram's failure. Now, there's a lot we can say about Sarai. She submitted to her husband. God blessed her, and God blessed her husband for her faith and submitting to her husband. So it's a wonderful story of trusting in the Lord. And God had her back. And he makes a distinction between those who are his and those who are not. And he had her back. He made sure no one touched Sarai, his daughter. He had her back. But there's a famine. I say this about life. We all face a famine. Every one of us in this room will face famines. Abraham had a famine. Isaac had a famine. Jacob had a famine. Joseph had a famine. The Bible is filled with famines. Famines for good people, 
famines for bad people, famines for those who obey, and famines for those who disobey, because it rains on the just and the unjust. A famine is not an if, but a when. Every one of us in this room have been or will be or will continue to be tested with famines where it just didn't work out that way and the provision wasn't there and now we're being tested. And the more you go for it, the Lord, the more likely you'll be tested by a famine. Now God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And he gets to the promised land, tent, altar, and what's he face? A famine. A famine is not evidence that God's not with you. A famine is evidence that God is testing you. The famine tests us. How do we handle adversity? How do we handle lack? How do we handle the loss of this and the loss of that and the provision not coming through this way? A famine for women of faith and men of faith brings us to our knees and a greater dependency upon the Lord. That's what famines do. For the people of faith, people grow through famines. Hey, Elijah in the famine, the oil just keeps going, keeps going, going, going through the widow till the end of the famine. God takes care of his own. And in a famine, we see his hands in the details more often than we do in prosperity. The details of a famine reveal his handiwork and personal DNA in our life, generally more so than prosperity. We're more likely to recognize it, and we're more likely to be thankful for it. But we also have here failure, Abram's failure, because obviously this is a failure for Abram. But it's not about the failure in the end. It's about the growing the fruit. We are not perfect. Abram needed a savior, and his savior is Jesus Christ, who came through his son of promise, Isaac. I mean, before Christ came, the distinction between heaven and hell is called Abram's bosom, right? Like, he's like heaven pre-existing before the resurrection of Jesus Christ is called Abram's bosom, so he's, he's doing pretty good. But he had failures. He's a son of Adam. In Adam all sin, and all die. So it encourages me that because we fail. We fail when we're surrounded by Canaanites. We fail in a famine. We fail when we run from where we're supposed to be. We're very fragile, frail beings. We can be so prideful one moment and be despondent to want to take our life the next. That's the human experience. Failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. My devotion, November 1987. The Holy Spirit calling me to ministry. Failure is inevitable. Growth is optional. So don't beat yourself up too bad. I'll close with a sports analogy. All the best athletes, they put the failures behind them pretty quick. That's what makes them great. Some people throw an interception, they hang their head and they just can't get past it. The great ones, they throw it and they just, they're just looking at the, the, the sheet and the sidelines before they go right back out there again. You put it behind you right away. His mercies are new every morning. There is no reason for any of us to dwell on our failure in the famine or our failure in the prosperity. We cannot change September 9th. It's behind us. And September 10th is almost done. We, just, we have here and now. You've got to learn to apply grace properly to failures and for the hope of what tomorrow brings. We're not meant to beat ourselves up. We're meant to learn, repent, be humbled, grow, and go forward. Failure is inevitable. 
growth is optional. This great failure, this is nothing compared to the Hall of Fame moment of going up to Mount Moriah with Isaac in Genesis 22. Don't let your failures define you. Let your Savior define you.